All right, take your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter. Peter has already pointed out the foundation of faith being Jesus Christ. He is kind of firing a shot to the false teachers that were present there in what is now modern-day Turkey, but Peter wrote this book to address the churches in that area. And basically, some of the things that these false teachers were doing, they were kind of a a pre-Gnostic movement. Uh, Gnosticism is saying that uh, certain knowledge is where it's at in terms of our spirituality, and particularly having certain spiritual experiences, visions, that kind of thing, that that's going to move you uh, closer to the deity. But what uh, Peter is trying to do is saying that Jesus Christ is the foundation for our relationship with God. He's the source, he's the goal. And that these pursuits and all these special experiences, often what they do, what you see happening with certain movements is it produces isolation. You know, you have the haves and the have-nots within certain parts of Christendom, and and that's kind of ugly. Pride and arrogance, because, you know, I have it and you don't. I have the special sauce, you're not using it. And then a kind of reimagining of Christ. And I see this a lot now uh, within certain movements under a large umbrella of Christianity. Christ is redefined into this, you know, uber-tolerant, just-love kind of guy, and he just wants all of us to be comfortable. And so the idea is, is basically a different kind of Jesus than how the Bible reveals him. These are the kinds of things that go along uh, with the false teaching. You end up with a spiritual life that is really removed from Christ being our life. So Peter writes this book to address some of this. So as is our habit, let's all stand as we look at this passage together. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So back, well, I guess it has been in the 80s, I got connected with a company when we lived out in Denver. And I worked for them for seven years. And that company opened up a store here, and they asked me to move and manage the store here in Springfield. So Janet and I moved from Denver and moved here in um, 84, I think it was. When I was managing the store, we would, I would have to secure uh, different financial companies that would finance the goods that we were selling. Okay? And one of the guys ahead of a finance company was, you know, trying to get our business. And uh, he said, hey, I understand you're a Cardinal fan. And I go, yeah. And he said, uh, hey, I can uh, get you free tickets to a Cardinal game. And you know, all you got to do is go to the will call window, you know, tell them who you are, and they'll have the tickets for you. I go, all right. Yeah, I won't say no to that. You know, I'm a huge Cardinal fan. So drove up to St. Louis, went to the game, went to the will call window, said, hey, I'm here, Kevin Short, to... I'll pick up my tickets, and they're looking through. It goes, uh, we don't have a Kevin Short here. Gave the other guy's name, 
Sorry, we don't know him either. No tickets. Called the guy, goes, oh, man, I'm sorry, I forgot. And I'm like, dude, really? So it was already sold out. So uh, ended up getting, you know, standing room and uh, went to the game anyway. But what was supposed to be free wasn't, <laughs> right? And I think when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to acquiring eternal life, it's supposed to be free. But, and it's not just, you know, false teachers and cults, but I think it's even certain Christian sects at S-E-C-T. <laughs> Got to make sure I communicate clearly. All right. They will, they will add things to the gospel, things that we ought to do to have a relationship with God. In other words, the gospel is not enough. So, you know, just depending on what denomination you're a part of, what particular, you know, church you're a part of will determine what those extra things might be. And it's unfortunate because I think it confuses the gospel and it communicates that Christ is not enough and that what I received at salvation in Christ is simply not enough. I need more. I need your program. You know, I need this little thing. You know, I need to dunk myself in water to get it done or I need to have some special spiritual gift to get it done. Um, just fill in the blank, whatever it is. And I think what Peter is trying to do is address some of that. So in verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us half the things we need pertaining to life. No, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So he wastes no time to identify the source of godliness, and it's the divine power of Christ in us. Really, no person can make him or herself spiritual in terms of with God, spiritually strong or mature. This is something that God grants to us. Now, what the false teachers were saying is that you needed some experience. You needed to pursue some vision, and Peter is saying, no, it's Christ himself. It's this relationship with Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul clearly stated, not only was salvation something that was in Christ, but also our growth as a Christian is in Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, this is not of your own doing, this is speaking of salvation, it is a gift of God, something that God gives to us. But it's not just salvation, it's the Christian life. And also in Philippians 2, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will, giving you the, the, the volition to do what is right, and to work for his good pleasure. He not only gives us the will to do what's right, he gives us the power, the energy to do what is right. And so if God has given us all things in the indwelling spirit and person of Christ, and Peter makes specific that includes all things pertaining to life, necessary for life and godliness, then what are we missing? <laughs> when Peter says all things, 
he says it is for life. And the word means an absolute fullness of life. And elsewhere in the New Testament, you might see the term eternal life. And normally we interpret that to always mean entrance into heaven. But that is not what that term always means depending on the context. It could just mean quality of life. And a life marked by eternity would be a way to say it, right? And so the, the word means an absolute fullness of life, vital, animating, spiritual, ethical, dynamic life. The point is, we don't get a basement, bargain basement deal with Jesus. I referred to when I had a real job here in Springfield. Um, that's what people always say to me when you're a pastor. Do you ever have a real job? It's like, okay, thanks. Um, but anyway, when I was manager, we had to, we had to train people. Now, and I got to tell you, I didn't like everything about my job, and this I hated. I just hated it. Uh, the company I worked for said that we were never to just accept the individual item that people wanted to buy. We always had to upsell them, okay? You accessorize. And that's the way they make their make a lot of extra money. So, you know, you see this with, you know, whether you're buying furniture, a car, whatever, they're always trying to accessorize, right? So no matter the item, uh, you always seek more. But the beauty of what we have in Jesus Christ is that he is sufficient. That there is no discount Jesus or, or something at salvation that we're lacking, but that Jesus Christ is completely sufficient. There's no upsailing, right? There's no more gifts, more spirit if you do this or that. He gives you all that you need. What? For this wonderful life, for the abundant life. Now, it's not that we can't benefit from certain gifts from programs, from activities. So please don't hear me wrong. Those things can be all great, but they're only beneficial to the point that they communicate to us our sufficiency in Christ, okay? Instead of adding, you know, kind of unnecessary levels that we feel like we have to attain to. Genuine believers have everything they need to live a godly life. The word us refers to all believers, not just apostles, not just Jewish believers. And again, this is eternal life or excellent life or for whatever you want to call it. It's typified by godliness. That's the kind of life that Peter refers to here. Again, God is not um, only giving you everything in Christ to experience salvation, but he gives you everything you need to live the Christian life to its fullest. When we were born into the family of God, he did not leave you without pertinent elements. God gave you everything you need for life and godliness. Have you already heard me say this about five times? I'm going to say it a lot more today, all right? Listen to Colossians 2. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. Well, been made what? complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Paul says again, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If I can do all things 
through the Christ who is in me as a believer, then what am I missing to live the Christian life in complete obedience to the glory of God? Nothing. Now, Peter brings some specificity to this by saying, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We talked last week how knowledge means more than just acquiring facts, but it's a personal, intimate, experiential, practical knowledge in our relationship with Christ, all right? The more I come to know Christ in a personal way, the more we begin to understand who he is, all the benefits I have in Christ, and then I experiencing this partaking of this life. But in Christ, there is divine power. And so the Christian life involves actually depending on Christ moment by moment for my Christian life. Now, in a, in a, in a practical way, what does this look like? Well, I think a lot of Christians, and, and listen, I was this way when I first became a Christian. Uh, I was, it was in the ninth grade. And every time the church doors were open, I was there. Every time, okay? And I mean, I, I couldn't have been more faithful because I felt like that's what I needed to be close to God. I needed to be active. I had to do this. And a lot of it was just kind of, you know, fleshly. My friends were doing it. I wanted to be accepted, I thought I was doing the right thing, but as I look back on it now, a lot of it was just thinking, if I performed right, then God would be pleased with me. And what the Bible is communicating in grace and through the love of Christ is, God already accepts and loves us because of the gospel, so there is nothing I can do to make God love me anymore and there's nothing I can do to make God love me any less. It's secured in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean everything I do pleases God. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in terms of acceptance. Just like, I've said this a hundred times, with one of your kids. You love your child, all right? And that child will always be yours. You will always love that child. But are you pleased with everything the child does? Well, of course not. But the position of being a son or daughter in your family is always going to be there. At least I hope that was your experience. That's the way it certainly should be, okay? Paul said this in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So his gracious power supplies all that he demands. Now, we're able to enjoy, this passage says, a, a piece of glory, as his divine power is manifested in our lives. And then there's excellence. It speaks to a, a high moral virtue. So believers, through the indwelling Christ, are given all they need to demonstrate the loveliness of Christ's character. And again, I think Peter is taking a direct shot at the false teachers who we learn later in the book, we're basically living under this kind of moral anarchy. Do whatever you want. There was this new definition of love that they gave. Accepts all behavior. You know, anything that God has condemned in the Bible, don't worry about that. God loves you. All right? Well, 
it's true he loves us, but it doesn't mean he approves of everything we do, okay? I, I cheat on my wife. The Bible calls that sin. Does he still love me? Well, yeah, but I have created a whole horde of consequences, and then I'm going to have to experience, you know, not only earthly consequences, but I think a loss of reward in heaven. And so there's a, there's a steep price to pay, right? I'm not saying that it, it changes my status as a son of, uh, a child of God, but it hurts him, it hurts me, it hurts my family. You can, you can include a lot of things in that, all right, that, that we do in disobedience of God. So please don't hear me wrong that I'm saying if God loves us, we can do anything we want. That's not what I'm saying. But essentially, that's what the, these new spiritual teachers were saying then. That's what false teachers will say even now. You know, how many times have we heard? If I have heard this once, I've heard this 100 times. Jesus wants me happy. Wow. Okay, that's Oprah talking. That's not the Holy Spirit, all right? All right? And by happy, that means indulge your flesh. Whatever you want to do, that's what Jesus wants for you. But we redefine love. We redefine Jesus. So people will violate clear moral character in the Scripture, uh, modeled by Christ, and this is the new definition of love. That's kind of this false teaching. So... Listen, it's easy for me to maybe point fingers, you know, these people, that people. But listen, this is us, okay? This is within our camp. This is, you know, within Christianity that people can think this way, have this kind of worldview that we need to be careful of. So those whom Christ calls, listen, were to reflect Christ's glory by his moral character, right? Moral virtue. And the godly life that we live, understand this, that is Christ in us being lived out in dependent faith. Verse four adds, by which he has granted to us his precious and great, very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, if Peter does anything in these first few verses, it's to make clear that all righteousness, all godliness, all spiritual work is rooted in the goodness and the excellency of Christ. And that's the divine power in us, Christ in us. We see again that it's something that is given to us when he uses the the term granted to us in verse 4. It means to endow or to bestow. So, again, it's not self-contrived. It's something that Christ produces in us. Now, I've said this before to you, and I think it bears repeating again, all right? Because I'm the guy you see up here on Sunday morning, and I talk Bible verses, okay? And, And I preach the Word, right? Now, I want to be humble. I want to allow God to use me. But I know I haven't every time. And I know that there are others out there who are Christian leaders and they're schmucks, okay? They're doing things on the side that are not savory, okay? And yet, somehow God is still using them. 
Like, man, I, 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 don't, I don't understand that. My, my point is, and I'm including myself in this, I can have the outward works, what it looks like is godliness, even being up here and preaching, but I can be prideful, arrogant, know-it-all, angry all the time. Now, is God going to bless me for that? No. But I think God is big enough to where even if I'm speaking the truth, he may use it in your life. You may benefit from it, but in terms of rewards for me, nanya. Because I could be arrogant and prideful and what have you. So even though there are the outward works, doesn't mean my heart is in the right place. So what I'm talking about is, I think true spirituality, your heart is in the right place. Um, and I'm dependent upon Christ and not just myself. And so, you know, my prayer all the time when I get up here and speak to you is less of me, more of him, right? That, and that should be our whole life. Um, now, contextually, we know from reading further in this book that these false teachers, part of the things that they were propagating is that Christ was not coming back. Uh, we read this in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through uh, your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, uh, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Beloved, listen, God knows when Christ is coming, right? He knows all of the details. Newsflash, we don't. He does, we don't. We know enough to know that Christ is returning. Now, unless you think that this is just some minor detail, Christ returning, something that should not occupy our minds, you should be aware of the number of passages that speak of the second coming of Christ. It somehow is to be preeminent in our mind. And from a practical side, these are done to give us, the, the promises are given to give us hope. In the midst of a world with political upheaval, which we are in, and we've been in for a while. Scandalous behavior with our leaders, okay? And now when you hear that one is lying, it's like, oh yeah, well, I expect that now. We don't even, it's like we don't even hold them accountable for their lying, because it's just, that's what we expect them to do. I mean, people are searching for something, whether it's in religion, technology, philosophy, some kind of breakthrough to free us from all of this. And then just throw on top of that economically. You know, what am I going to do tomorrow, people are thinking. And our hearts yearn for something more. We want security. Um, I can remember when I was a small child 
And there was some kind of happening in my home, but I didn't know. My mother was scurrying about. And I went into their bedroom, and there was my father laying on the bed. And it's like, he's not moving. And I remember getting up on the bed, and it was so weird because he didn't move at all when I was up on the bed. And now I know, what I didn't know then is that he was in a diabetic coma. I just didn't know that. It was you know, very traumatizing to see a person that was your security and protection, lifeless, it seemed like. Um, but I was assured by my mother that, hey, an ambulance is coming. You know, your dad's going to be all right. Help is on the way. There's going to be hope. There's going to be relief. I was talking with somebody this weekend and thinking about how fast our world is changing. And i got to be honest with you, even as a pastor, the speed at which people are changing in their thoughts, and I've taught philosophy for, you know, 20-some years, and it seems like even now, the last five years, I have seen a change, you know, in students' thinking so much different now than it was even a decade ago. That it's just really challenging. And to think that there will be relief, that Christ is coming. And I may not see it in my lifetime, but I know it's coming. And what it does, it kind of lowers the anxiety a little bit, lowers the temperature. Because I've got to tell you, I don't like everything I see. I don't like everything I hear. Life is hard. There's a lot of things going on in our world I just don't like. But without the hope of Christ and that being real, and you say, well, Kevin, you're just believing in some fairy tale. Well, I beg to differ with you here, my friend. Because historians can even account for a real Christ. Historians, not even biblical writers, can account for a real Christ walking around after he died on the cross. So if that kind of God-man can rise from the dead, I'm going to believe he's going to be coming back again if he said he was. Okay? So, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but if a guy can do that, I believe he can do this. Okay? Help is on the way. And it's not a divine ambulance, by the way. It's the mighty sun, the bridegroom, the bright morning star, the holy and righteous one is coming, the Lord of all, the Lord of lords, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, the prince of peace, the ruler of God's creation. You can go on and on with the names that Christ is given, but that is who is coming. And that's our hope. Listen to how this precious and great promise is reiterated in the scripture. Matthew 24. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Titus 2. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly, eagerly waiting for him. That's Hebrews 9. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Be patient. You have injustice in your life, somebody who did you wrong. You know, somebody recently um, demolished our, one of our son's cars. Wasn't his fault. But the cop took a witness's statement who lied, said he came out of a parking lot, which he didn't. He was just on the road. And so now it's on his insurance. And I was telling him, I go, life is unfair. That sucks that you got to endure that. But be patient. This will be righted one day. You may not see it. God will take care of that. And again, it, it lowers the temperature a little bit. Now, I, I admit to you, I want to see it now. <laughs> I want to see all the wrongs righted now. I don't always get to see that. But I know that that time is coming. So I can be patient. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought at you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 1. Now listen, if you want to say you don't believe God, that's on you. But even a four-year-old can see that God has promised that Christ is coming again. And Peter is hammering the point of Christ as the source, not only of salvation, not only of spiritual maturity, but also the reason for hope because he's coming again. It echoes the words of Paul when he says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. My dear friends, the word of God is an expression of Christ. John 1.1 1, 1 says, um, and this is the word, the word was with God, the word was God, right? It's, it's really one and the same. It's one and the same. The word of God and the Son are the revelation of God to us. In this regard, I love what John Wesley said here. He said, I want to know one thing. The way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He's written it down in a book. Oh, give me the book. At any price, give me the book of God. End quote. I love that. Why do we have these promises? Peter says. It's so the divine nature, the new spirit, the new creation in us can prosper and not be consumed by the world. All of us know Christians who have tubed out, who, you know, Christ was important to them, fellowship was important to them with other Christians, and now, no thanks. I read recently that since COVID, a third of those in the United States that went to church have quit coming. A third. Now, listen, I'm not saying people aren't Christians if they don't, if they don't go to church. I'm just saying that's a problem, that it, it's no longer important. And what Peter, I think, is saying is this divine nature in you, this new creation in you is not to be consumed by these competing desires. 
is reference to the divine nature. It doesn't mean that a person is deified, like with little gods walking around. And the, the context lets us know that this is talking about believers who will share in the moral qualities of Christ. You can read further on in this chapter and you see all of these different virtues that Peter's talking about. So that's how the divine nature is, is manifested. It's a way of saying that we are appropriating all that this new nature in Christ affords us, right? Participation with the newer divine nature given to us is this process they call being partakers. And again, it's really a practical approach. God has given believers what they need for godly living so that we're to walk consistent with this new nature in Christ and to escape the lusts that corrupts human life in this world. It doesn't imply that we're going to achieve moral perfection here. That's not what's being claimed. It doesn't mean that we're divine, little gods walking around, which I've heard. It means we share or participate with the indwelling spirit in the person of Christ to walk consistent with these virtues that were modeled by Christ. Our will and our power have changed from lustful, selfish flesh to this accessibility to supernatural resources. And we are responsible to live consistent with this excellent moral character and to be dependent upon Christ. You could say it this way, that the Christian life, if it's about any one thing, it's about dependence on the victorious Christ living his life through us, moment by moment. It's not a philosophy or deeper doctrinal emphasis. It's not some passive, you know, sit back and let go and let God, as a lot of people will say. It's really a rejection of self-effort. Like I talked about that when I'm up here preaching and I can be proud and arrogant. So when those thoughts come to my mind and heart, I have to reject that. And every Sunday I'm praying by myself. It'd be a little weird for me to do this out loud, but I pray by myself, you know, Lord, keep back this pride, this arrogance. May your spirit control what I'm saying, what I'm doing. That's kind of the attitude here. And it's true for all of us, no matter what we do. Okay? And partaking of this divine nature. All right? Um, so I'm wanting to submit to Christ moment by moment. We're told in Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Now listen, we still have the world. I still have the world that woos me. I still have Satan who lies to me. I still have my flesh in its own self-effort, in its own pride and arrogance, wanting to have its own way. Those things are constants for us in terms of temptation. But I have now been reborn in the Spirit, being a Christian, okay, who gives me strength through Christ to live the Christian life. So now I have a choice. Before I knew Christ, I always obeyed my flesh. But now with Christ, 
this new nature in us, I do not have to follow the flesh patterns, the lies of Satan, or the corruption of the world. Objective faith in him becomes responsive faith to him. Objective faith that he died, was buried, and rose again. He was a real person. He was in a real grave. He rose from the dead in a real body. Objective faith in him becomes responsive faith to him, moment by moment. That's the essence of the Christian life. Colossians 2 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So I want my actions on the outside to match the Spirit of Christ on the inside. You know, all false teaching invariably is a distraction away from the sufficiency of Christ. And it's focused more on special experiences, performances, anything to muster up some works that separate me from the pack. Oh, you're, you're part of that denomination. Well, you don't have what we got. See how arrogant that can sound, how that is? But if they got Christ, they got all they need, right? We've become partakers, our, te- our text says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Well, there, I think there are two aspects of this truth. There's an escape in this world, and there's, there's an ultimate escape in the next, Okay? So, let's talk about this. When we come to Christ, a death has taken place. I'm going to talk about three deaths. First of all, we are dead to the law. Now, whenever the New Testament talks about being dead to the law, it's usually referring to all the Old Testament prescriptions, right, that I have to do to, and think that I'm accepted by God by that. But that's not the case. The law was originally given to show us we have a problem because we could never meet it. But some people think that's the answer. I just have to obey the law, and then I'm going to please God. That's not the answer. So we have to die to the law. Galatians 2.19 says, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. That's a way of saying, through the law I realize i got a problem, my sin. But i got to die to that thinking that I can obey that so that I can really live to God in victorious faith. Now, when Paul uses the term law, I think you could just insert, by way of our own application, is religious performance to gain acceptance. Religious performance to gain acceptance. And sadly, that describes a lot of Christianity. Religious performance to gain acceptance. Not only that, but I also died to sin being my identity. Our former identity was marked by a propensity for sin. That has died. Now, we couldn't help ourselves, right? That's just who we were. You say, well, no, wait a minute, Kevin. You know, uh, before I was a Christian, I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't cheat on my taxes. Well, you know, good for you. I'm glad you didn't, right? But sin is a lot bigger than that, (laughs) right? Sin is pride, arrogance, selfishness, lust, Okay? It includes a whole horde of things and sin in our heart. And we all, 
have done that, right? So when I became a Christian, I died to sin being my identity. Uh, Some call this an old nature. Some call it something else. But whatever you call it, it has died. We might say it this way. That which marked our identity, that which was the real you, was characterized by our motivation and action to sin. But we read in Romans 6.6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So when Christ comes into our life, you know what that means? The old you has died. You've become a completely new person whose identity whose character now has a propensity for righteousness. God has given me a different want to. A will now that wants to please him and not just please myself. Old things have passed away. All things become new. Satan would have us believe that as believers, we are filled with sin and we don't have what it takes. That's a lie. Satan would have you believe you really do not have what you need to have victory over sin. That's a lie. The facts are the old man, the old you, the person with the propensity and identity of sin has died with Christ. See, it's very practical that when I am tempted with whatever the temptation is, and it presents itself to me, you're going to have voices in your head. And they'll tell you, you have to do this. This is who you are. And you can say, no, it's not. I am a new creature in Christ, and I do not have to obey this. And Christ has given me what I need to say no to this and yes to him. I've also died to living for myself when I came to Christ. By our union with Christ, ownership has changed. And we give up our rights in order to submit to God's will. Paul has called himself numerous times a bond slave to Christ. And Peter, the first word he used to describe himself in 2 Peter, was a servant. Same idea. Okay? So we've literally been bought off the auction block, the slave block. No longer do we have the old master. We actually have a new master, and his name is Jesus Christ. We have new owners. No longer is myself calling the shot. Christ is. Ownership has changed. Allegiance has changed. Our wills are now obligated to Christ. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 4, 22-24 says, Laying aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, we have these realities of how we're no longer subject to the lusts of our culture of this world. All right, I'm dead to sin, dead to the law, dead to self, all right, because I'm in Christ. But what the false teachers were saying is that, you know what, the world um, isn't all that important, and so just indulge the flesh. 
Sin however you want. And Peter's saying, no, when Christ is in you, then godly character is to come out. Okay? And then there will come a day in which I am ultimately delivered from this body, from this world, from Satan being in this world, delivered completely. I'm in heaven. I can enjoy his presence, and sin is no longer ghosting us. How practical is it for me to think of that day? How practical is it for me to think of the second coming of Christ? I explained some of that, but I read something recently that I've never heard before. That currently in Jerusalem, some people have what's called a Messiah clause, C-L-A-U-S-E, a Messiah clause, put in some of the contracts between tenants and owners. I mean, is this weird or not? All right? And, and what it is, is to protect property owners from loss should the Messiah come back. Wow. Let me ask you this. Does the second coming have any daily impact on us? I don't know about you, but when I read that and I read this passage, I was thinking, whoa, uh, i got to change some of my thinking. You know, we normally don't like to know the end of a story before we start reading it. But the story of history, we know. We know how it's going to end. We know he's coming back. We know that sin will not get the ultimate victory. It's been defeated in our lives individually, and we're no longer subject to it. But the world will be delivered from it when he comes again on a white horse and he rules. It's an amazing thing to think about. But because of that, my head can hit the pillow at night. And even though there might be things that are sad, and boy, we've had a lot of sad things lately, and even though the world is in the shape it's in, I realize I can be patient. I can be at peace. Listen, I certainly am not going to give you some name it and claim it theology. You know me. You know that's not, that's my, not my jam. Right, But I do believe that wherever we're at and whatever God is allowing in your life, as terrible as it may seem, that God can intervene in that situation and he can give you peace, he can give you comfort, he can sit with you, and his presence will be all we need. I don't like that one of my good friends passed away this week. I mean, I don't like a lot of things in life. But it's not like I'm hopeless. It's not like I'm just going to throw my hands up and say, I have nothing left. And even if my wife were to die today, my kids were to die today, I could still say the same thing. I wouldn't like that. I would grieve deeply. But Christ is still there with me. And my friends, I think a lot of the times the frustration we get in this life is because 
of the, of the futility of the idols that we grab at, whether it's a spouse, our kids, money, a promotion, a sports team, whatever it is. And God is just reminding us that is not where it's at. I can enjoy those things temporarily, but my hope is in him. Let's pray.